Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. We encourage you to look at our website. We have lots of great supplemental resources. We have a free scripture study app called Scripture Plus. We hope that these materials and resources will enhance your scripture study with the intent that you feel greater love and peace from God in your life. Today, Messiah 29 through Alma 4. And the big question that we're dealing with today is, how do you create a society of peace? And what role do people and governments play in creating a peaceful society? So, c consider the question, what would it be like to live in a society where you could guarantee that your government leaders were, were wise people, they, they made perfect decisions that would benefit the most number of people for the longest period of time, without taking any of the, the glory or the credit or the power just for themselves or to gratify their own pride. Uh, what if you could also guarantee that those leaders before making any decision would always go to the Lord and plead for his guidance, his light, his direction in making those decisions? That, that would be an amazing, amazing scenario. Uh, here's King Mosiah. You ready? You have, and he is named after his grandfather, obviously, King Mosiah I that we have record of, and then his father, King Benjamin. So, here's King Mosiah, he's, he's come to the end of his life, he realizes he, he's not going to live very much longer, and so he's also a, a great student of history. This is the king who translated the Jaredite record, which is loaded with stories of kings, one after the other after the other, most of them being really, really wicked in that case, and the occasional really good king mixed in, but he saw that. He has the brass plates. He knows the history of the house of Israel really well in this regard, that when Moses brought the children of Israel into the promised land, after Moses and Joshua, we turn the ruling of the people over to judges until that day when the people come and say, we, we want to be like all the other nations. They all have kings. We want to be like them. We want to be like the world. And so Samuel the prophet went to the Lord and said, what, what do you want me to do? They, they want a king. And uh, God said, no, Samuel, give them what they want. Give them a king. They've not rejected you as my prophet. They've rejected me as their ultimate king. So, this is the unique perspective that these three and Nephi at the very beginning of the book seem to bring into the story that most kings, like the vast majority, the highest percentage of kings don't bring in, which is God is the king of kings, the king of heaven. And Jacob, the brother of Nephi, teaches this very powerfully in 2 Nephi chapter 10, and he's actually quoting God. For he that raiseth up a king against me shall perish. Think of King Noah. For I, the Lord, 
the king of heaven will be their king and I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. So as you read the Bible and as you read the Book of Mormon, this is actually one of the driving questions that creates the history of these people is them trying to figure out who's the king. And Nephi, through his brother Jacob, reveals it. It's God. God is the king. And all these stories that show up all over the Book of Mormon are people having conflict about, well, I want to be a human king. And what we learn from Mosiah is that God will allow that a human king under very specific circumstances. But what we also see is that God actually prefers that we empower people through agency to choose him as the king. That's a wonderful perspective that what normally kings do in the history of the world, in the history of the House of Israel, in the history of the Book of Ether, all of the perspective that Mosiah has at his disposal, he's looking at this saying, wow, this normally doesn't go well. We've been very blessed in his family line in the recent history to say this, this is good, but he said it normally doesn't go well. Why? Because most kings take power and agency and liberty away from the people and take it to themselves, whereas those who are successful in their kingship turn to God and recognize his authority as the king of kings, lord of lords, and they act like Jesus would, servant leadership, and so it, it goes well. But here's the problem. He's nearing the end of his life, the people all want his son, Aaron, to be the next king, and, and here's Mosiah in chapter 29 saying, um, we have a couple problems with this. One, Aaron doesn't want to be the king. He wants to be a missionary, and he's going on a mission down to the Lamanites. That was already de dealt with in, in the previous couple chapters. So he has no interest in taking the throne. Not, not interested in politics. The second thing, Mosiah knows from all of this history and from his own experience, he knows the struggles of being a king and the temptations that a king will face that other people won't, temptations to, to get lifted up in more pride and, and get away with sin and iniquity that common people might not be able to, to do. And he knows that his son has had a pretty rough past. Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, along with Alma the Younger, they had some really rough times fighting against the church, caught up in sin and pride and iniquity, and he's concerned that should something happen and Aaron shift back to his old ways, he would undo all the good that has been set up. This is one of the, the sad ironies of life. It takes a lot longer to build up a society, to build up faith, to build up a family, to build up goodness than it does to tear it down. All of those things, you, you, can, you can wipe out generations of hard labor to build something up. You, you can wipe it out very quickly, and he mentions it specifically. Look at this. So go to verse... Um, Go to verse 13, for starters. You're in chapter 29. Therefore, if it were possible, now you could circle the word if, because that's a big if, right? 
if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings who would establish the laws of God and judge, judge this people according to his commandments, yeah, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for his people, I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. He's saying, look, short of having God himself live on the earth, the best form of government would be to have people like him as your leader. That's great. There's no better form of government because he is going to serve you and keep all of God's laws at the forefront, and it's going to be righteous. It's going to be wonderful. And what's interesting about Benjamin is that he serves the people. He ministers to them. Now, think about today in the world, most countries have a prime minister. We have a president in the United States. Most other countries have prime ministers. Do you know what the word minister, let me borrow that pen, comes from a very interesting word. It comes from the word minus, that you're less than. How many world leaders do you know that actually try to put themselves underneath to support people and serve them? No, I'm at the top. Benjamin was this ideal leader. He truly ministered to the people. In fact, even another word that you've probably all heard of is the word knight. Now, we think of these as powerful people. In the German, this word literally means to be a servant. And again, what Tyler is teaching here is that it's very hard for typical humans to give up their pride for power, prestige, and authority over others, and the willingness to lower yourself and condescend so you can support others is very rare among many humans. And so we have this challenge here where these incredible leaders, Mosiah is realizing this is a rare thing. How can we create a society where we minimize the likelihood that we will fall into um, a lack of peace because of a bad king like we saw all over the Old Testament, all over the Jaredite records, and particularly with Noah. And Aaron, as you point out, he's got all his pride. He wanted to be, it was all about himself, and he's now repented, but what if he fell back into not wanting to be less than others? And that is, that's what Mosiah is trying to, to figure out, is how do you move forward in a way that can guarantee to a higher degree of certainty that wise, honorable, inspired people aren't going to be replaced by prideful, sinful, iniquitous people. Look at verse 18. Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities they were brought into bondage. So, again, just to really quickly recap here, Mosiah isn't, wasn't born yesterday. He, he understands the, the complexities of this. He's been, he's been the king for 30 years. He knows what a king goes through and, and the struggles and the decisions that need to be made, and he knows his history not just of the Book of Mormon times but of looking at King Saul, King David, King Solomon. None of those ended well. Uh, then when Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you've got dozens of kings between those two kingdoms, and only a small, small percentage of them turned out to be what you'd consider a good king. So he's saying, look, in the probabilities, uh, I, he, he's establishing a case to say we need to let God 
be our king, and let's come up with a government system that is actually the opposite flow of what happened in the Old Testament. So he's like, we're going to go from the reigns of the kings the opposite direction and begin the reigns of the judges, uh, flipping what happened in the Old Testament. So look at verse 25. This is the key, verse 25 and 26. Therefore, choose you by the voice of this people, judges, that ye may be judged according to the laws which have been given to you by our fathers, which are correct, and which were given them by the hand of the Lord. So, you can see his new proposal. It's, it's really quite simple. God gave laws to the kings that were righteous, so he's referring mostly to King Benjamin and Mosiah, his grandfather, and he's not saying this, he's being very, very uh, humble, but the reality is, is Mosiah has been an amazing king. He's not going to tell you that, but I will. Uh, 30 years of incredible seership. He, he's a seer and a king and a prophet. He's all of these things, amazing, and he's saying, look, we've got really good laws and back then there is no separation of church and state, right? It's, it's the law of, of Moses and these directions that have been given to him, that is their law. And he says, so we're going to give these now to judges, and all they're going to do is judge the people according to how they live these incredible laws that have been given by God. It's pretty, pretty simple. The key word here is voice of the people. In verse 25, you could mark it, by the voice of this people. Look at verse 26. Now it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right, but it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. Therefore, this shall you observe and make it your law, to do your business by the voice of the people. So, it's a really profound thing when you say you have power in the masses of, of these people to decide who your judges are going to be and what's going to happen. So, he gives you the scenario of, so what happens if the voice of the people chooses iniquity? What if more people want bad laws and we want to change the laws or change the former government? He tells you, well, at that time, God's going to deliver you with to, to destruction. You're, you're going to have consequences for those choices. This introduces for us one of the most profound aspects of all of our very existence, which is this notion of agency and accountability. What he's doing here, for those of you who aren't very interested in politics or aren't really into the government kinds of things, like it or not, this is a part of our entire existence, our life, going clear back to heaven. Satan's attack was seeking to destroy the agency of man. He's, he's trying to overthrow, he's trying to get people to vote or to change the way they, they see God and shift their focus to himself. It's everything, everything in leadership, everything in kingship is either trying to emulate the devil 
to one degree or another or trying to emulate the Savior to one degree or another, and there's no perfect analogy. But the point is, righteous kings act like Christ. Unrighteous kings act like the devil, and the devil takes agency from the people and takes it to himself. Christ gives more what is a synonym for liber- or for agency? Liberty, freedom, and he gives it out to the people to be able to make choices, but that then they have to be accountable for them. This is, this is clearly laid out here. Now look at verse 38. Therefore, they relinquished their desire for a king and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land, yea, and every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. One of Satan's lies and one of his greatest deceptions is that uh, freedom is the ability to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want, and with whomever you want. That's freedom. That's liberty. But he'll never tell you about the accountability that's attached to those choices because that's how he binds us. That's how he actually takes away our agency. And so we live in a world that says things like, uh, we don't need organized religion, we don't need laws, we don't need commandments, God isn't doing things, just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's live it up. That's freedom. If you want to talk about freedom, go interview people who were in maximum security prison and ask them what it was like to enjoy that do-whatever-you-want mentality, and now how much freedom do you have? Uh, Elder D. Todd Christofferson wrote a great article years ago in The Enzyme called Moral Agency, and in there he has a really profound statement. He says, if you want more freedom, if you want more agency, if you want more liberty, learn as many of God's laws as you can and keep them. That's how you get more freedom. Jesus is the ultimate example of freedom, of power, of agency. All of these these things that people seek, and yet they seek it in the wrong direction. Follow Christ, and what you'll do is keep to the best of your ability as many of God's laws as you can, which leads to more and more freedom. And you're not afraid of the, the accountability aspect. So, here's this grand shift. We're no longer going to have a king telling you what to do. You're going to tell the government what to do in this context, um, which in the U.S., uh, people get so, so concerned about who's in the White House, and if we're not careful, we'll be more concerned about who's in the White House than who's in my house. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, it doesn't matter what form of government you, you live under, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're taught to be law-abiding, peacekeeping, wherever possible, citizens who contribute to our societies, and it matters far less, in, in a U.S. context, it matters far less who's in the White House than who's in my house and the connections that my house is making to God in this, in this context, um, to say, I'm going to see God as my king, and I don't have to wonder if he's going to win the election this year in my house. 
because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore government and our civic responsibilities. If King Mosiah were here, I think he would look at us and say, get involved, let your voice be heard. If you, if you live in a country or in a, in a society where you have the capacity to vote, vote. Be involved in peaceful, reasonable, uh, meaningful ways in your government. Let's look again at this verse that Tyler had read back in uh, verse 38. And as we're reading through Mosiah 29 through Alma 4, you might look for the words equal, inequality, and iniquity. In fact, you can look for those throughout the Book of Mormon. Let's read this, and I'm going to talk about why these words matter. Therefore, they relinquished their desires for a king and became exceedingly anxious that every man should have an equal chance throughout all the land. Now, in other places in this chapters that we're going to be dealing with today, uh, there's a rise of iniquity, and there's also an inequality that breaks out among the people because the laws are not obeyed or because people are trying to change the laws that have been revealed by God. And it's interesting, the word judges literally means the one who speaks. And what are they speaking? They're actually teaching the revealed laws. And the voice of the people is supposed to choose those who will teach and speak the laws to them. So here's where the word, uh, these two words of equal and inequality, Let's switch sides here, and then I'll put this next word, iniquity. If you go look at the foundation of these two words, the etymology, these two words actually come from the same root word. Inequality and iniquity really are essentially the same word. And when there's iniquity, it creates inequality, and inequality creates iniquity. And you can see that pattern throughout the Book of Mormon and through other scriptures. There's this cycle. And what Mosiah was trying to do was say, how do we establish a society where there's more equality to minimize iniquity so we might live in peace? So again, just watch this pattern. How does iniquity drive inequality and inequality drives iniquity? Okay, so here we go. We embark on this new form of government. We have our first recorded, in the Book of Mormon, our first recorded election uh, where the people get to pick who are, who are going to be our, our judges, and our chief judge ends up being Alma the Younger. And you would think, okay, now you have Alma, this great prophet who is sitting on the throne, of, of judgment, the chief judgment seat. I guess it's not a throne, that would be for the kings. And uh, you would think, now everything's going to be easier for the Nephites. <laughs> well, you turn over to Alma chapter 1, and you say, how did, how did things go in his first year on that judgment seat? And he's faced with a pretty serious struggle right out of the chute because you're introduced to a guy by the name of Nehor. Now, normally, we, it, when we teach in, in our church, we, we share things, and then at the very end, we pull back the red curtain and say, ta-da, see the connection? 
I want to reverse that today, and I want to pull back a little bit of the red curtain at the beginning so that you understand where I'm going with this right up front. Uh, I believe that the Book of Mormon is a serious lens through which we can see eternal truths, past, present, and future. I don't believe it's just a book about historical people in one day, one time, 2,000 years ago. But their stories then become this, these lenses we put on and see all kinds of, of prophetic visions of things as they really are. That's the definition of truth. A knowledge of things as they really are, as they were, and as they are to come. That's, that's why I get so, so giddy and so excited about the Book of Mormon is because I love looking for my story and your story and his story and his story too. Because what you get here in Alma chapter 1 is you're going to get an, another, yet again, variations on eternal themes, and in this case, an eternal premortal theme. So what you have is you have Nehor and you have Alma set up in this story. Nehor becomes a lens through which we can see the devil in a, in a premortal context, Alma becoming a Christ figure for us in, in a symbolic sense. Okay. Oh, by the way, have you, have you noticed this? This is just for fun. Total tangent. Everything about him is bad. You take off the D, he's the most evil character ever. You take off the E, he's the most vile creature. Thinking about him should make you ill, and if you follow him, you're going to go, yeah, you get it. I have to pronounce that with a British accent. So, from start to finish, everything about this guy seems to be bad, and yet he started really good. He started really powerful. Now, watch what happens as Nehor's story unfolds at what it reveals about the devil in the premortal context. Look at verse 2. So, there's a man who was brought before Alma in his first year to be judged, a man who was, notice, Mark the, the, the adjectives here. He was large, noted for his much strength. Lucifer up in heaven was not a, a nobody. He was a son of the morning. He was powerful. C.S. Lewis taught the doctrine. I love this, and I totally agree with him when he said, you don't make devils out of rats. You make devils out of angels. The higher the angel, the lower the devil when he falls. That's Lucifer, an extremely large, mighty, much strength until pride set in and, and this ambition started to take over. Look at verse 3. So he had gone about among the people. Can you picture more than Nehor's story? Can you picture the devil doing this? And he was preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and that they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. Are you noticing this? I, I shouldn't have to work. I should be supported. Give me your work, your labor, to benefit me. Okay? That's King Noah, and that's 
wicked leaders throughout history. That's the entirety of the Book of Ether, and that's most of Kings and Chronicles. And that's the opposite of King Benjamin and Mosiah. Absolutely. Now look at this, verse 4. Uh, this will sound very, very familiar in a pre-mortal context. And he also testified unto the people that, mark it, all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men, and had also redeemed all men, and in the end, all men should have eternal life. That's 100%. Wow, that sounds familiar. That is exactly Satan's deception, Satan's lie up in heaven. When I was younger, I used to think, man, what, what went wrong? Why did, why did we pick the Lord's plan, the Heavenly Father's plan, when Satan promised he could save everybody. It didn't take long for me to, to grow in my spiritual maturity through those teenage years and realize, oh, wait a minute. If there had been a way to save everyone, God would have figured that out long before Satan was born into the spirit realm of heaven, and that would have been his plan. So the realization that I came to the older I got was, oh, Satan really is the father of all lies and deception, and that was quite possibly his biggest lie of all time, was, I will save all of them, I will lose none of them, the reality being he was basically saying to us, I'm smarter than, than God, I love you more than God, and I'm more powerful than God, follow me not God. Oh, and by the way, for putting me in charge, my only price tag is I get all the glory. I get the throne. I get to be the king. Are you noticing how that, that desire, that, that passion for power and the throne and the crown that you see throughout the Bible and the Book of Mormon, it, it wasn't invented here. These are just echoes of a premortal theme that keep playing out in, in mortality on, on the earth. So Satan stepping forward saying, I will lose none of them, give me all the glory and I will save all of you, is the biggest lie, in my opinion, of all of eternity. The fact is, Satan couldn't save you. He could only take, he could only do what the Gideon and Roberts did, which is secretly murder and plunder and rob in order for him to get gain. That's it. That's all that was going on in, in an eternal context. So now here's the key. Uh, I don't think that, that we were in that audience that day looking at that saying, hmm, that's a valid option. I think we were looking saying, that's a lie. You see, we've, we've fought this battle once and we won. Everyone who was born on this earth chose to follow God's plan. And now the same techniques are being used. And it's very, quite frankly, it's very appealing to a certain part of our mortal existence now to say, huh, I could, I could lift up my head and rejoice, I, I could eat, drink, and be merry, I could do whatever I want and I'm still going to be saved, then why in the world would I ever try to limit myself my desires, appetites, and passions based on God's commandments if it doesn't matter. If the people who are living it up out in the world are going to be saved just like I'm going to be saved, then why try? 
let me just experience all of the pleasures of mortality. That's the message. Now, here's the grand irony. Uh, Nehor never once mentions the name of Christ. He doesn't refer to the Messiah, he doesn't talk about Jesus, and yet we consistently refer to Nehor as one of the three biggest antichrists in the Book of Mormon. Sherem, Nehor, Korahor. And yet that middle guy, Nehor here, he never mentions Christ. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to mention the name to be antichrist. Just because Korahor and Sherem mention him but Nehor doesn't, doesn't mean he's not an antichrist, because an antichrist is anyone who preaches any doctrine about regarding your salvation or lack of salvation in Korahor's case without mentioning Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the plan of our Heavenly Father. If there's any other path to, to salvation other than through Christ, then it's an antichrist doctrine. So, no, he doesn't mention the name of Christ like Sherem did and like Korahor's going to do, but he is one of your biggest antichrists because he's his doctrine, if everyone's going to be saved in the end, all mankind should have eternal life, period, end of story, all of a sudden there's no need for a Christ. I don't need Jesus. If his doctrine is true, if, if what Satan taught is true, I don't need Jesus. Now, here's the, uh, here's the comparison. In the premortal council, the Father presents his plan and says, whom shall I send? Because in that plan there were two problems, death and sin. Agency is going to result in poor choices. So we needed somebody to come down to help us overcome death and hell death and sin. Whom shall I send? Who is both willing and able to overcome both of those deaths for all of God's children? In that moment, I don't believe, and by the way, I have no authority for this, but I don't believe for a minute that everybody in the vast council of heaven started looking around saying, hmm, that's a good question. Who could we put on the ballot? Who should he send to overcome those two deaths? I don't believe that for a minute. I believe with all my heart that when the Father asked, whom shall I send, that every eye in the audience turned simultaneously and looked at one individual and one individual alone, who was probably standing right next to the Father on the right hand to see what his reaction would be to that question. And then in that moment, I can imagine my heart just bursting with love as the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Jehovah in the premortal council, steps forward and says, Father, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and the glory be thine forever. Uh, it was Elder Maxwell who said something like, never has one individual offered to do so much for so many in so few words as, here am I, send me. <laughs> and you can imagine that moment being shattered when this other voice comes out, here am I, send me. I will lose none of them and the glory be mine forever. Do you see the contrast? Satan offering to be our king, 
the way the world's kings largely have acted, which is, I don't want to suffer, I don't want any cross, but I want the crown. I don't want the thorns, but I want the throne, versus Jesus saying, I will take the burden of all of you, I will stand betwixt you and justice, I will suffer intently for you, I will serve you, I will minister to you, but I don't want the glory. I want the glory to stay with the Father. Give God the glory. Don't, don't give it to me, but I'll do all the suffering. Can you, can you see the, the contrast that we had available to us? I can imagine that uh, in that moment we were going around preaching, have faith in Christ, trust Jesus, he'll do what he said he'll do, and you can picture the devil and his servants going around preaching a totally different doctrine, a doctrine of just support me, give me your money, give me your, your glory, and I'll save you. It's all good, okay? Look at verse 6. Nehor began to be lifted up in the pride of his heart and to wear very costly apparel, yea, and even began to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. Are you seeing the replay? Are you seeing the variation on this premortal theme play out? So then he comes across a guy by the name of Gideon. Here he is growing in his success, and then he meets this Gideon, who, if you do the math, it's been about 54 years ago, roughly, when Gideon drew his sword and said, I'm going to kill King Noah, and goes and fights him and climbs up on the tower and has that whole interchange with Noah. That was 54 years ago. So if the guy was in his mid-20s, then he's now close to 80 years old. He's this venerable old man, power used to be this big, mighty man, now he's older, and he withstands Nehor in this, in this war of words, in this debate of doctrine, and uh, instead of admitting defeat, Nehor gets frustrated, draws his sword, and begins to smite Gideon in verse 9, and ends up killing the guy. That is what brings Nehor in front of Alma, the chief judge, is the murder of Gideon. And he's, he, verse 11, he is pleading for himself with much boldness, but Alma judges him according to the law which has been given. He's not giving his personal opinion, he's saying, look, based on the law, here's what happened, and Nehor is condemned to die, in verse 14. He's taken to the, the hill, Manti, in verse 15, and there he suffered an ignominious death, a shameful death. And you think, okay, good, Nehor's gone, we're good. What's the next word? Look at the first word of verse 16, nevertheless. In other words, in spite of the fact that Nehor died an ignominious death, mm, there's something bad happening here. This did not put an end to the spreading of priestcraft through the land. So the doctrine of Nehor is now going to spread, and it's going to create all kinds of problems. Turn the page over to chapter 2. Um, skipping a whole bunch of things here, but going to chapter 2, you're now in the fifth year of Alma's reign when, look at this, we've now, Nehor's gone, but his doctrine isn't, but wait a minute, it wasn't really his doctrine, was it? It was his doctrine, and it, he's not gone, and his doctrine isn't gone, so there's another guy that is going to come in and take the place 
of this devilish figure in the Book of Mormon in contrast to a Christ figure that's the same, Alma. And uh, Amlici is that guy. Look at verse 1, halfway down in verse 1. There's a man being called Amlici, he being a very cunning man, yea, a wise man as to the wisdom of the world, being after the order of the man that slew Gideon by the sword. So now you're seeing a different lens, a different side to the story of what the devil did and what the devil's trying to do today. He's very wise, very cunning, knows a lot in the wisdom of the world, right? Look at verse 2, he had drawn away much people after him, even so much that they began to be very powerful, they began to endeavor to establish Amosai to be a king over the people. Good grief, this just keeps going, doesn't it? Just when you finish with one guy, another one's there to take his place to say, we're going to keep doing the things that, that Lucifer did up in heaven to try to take away the, the freedoms and the liberties and the, the power of individuals and families and take it unto ourselves and bring them into bondage and destroy the agency of man. That's what all of these are, are happening. So what do you do if you're Alma? You say, well, we're supposed to govern by the voice of the people. So he says, there's a big enough group who's demanding this. Let's, let's have a vote. Voice of the people, they have a vote. Is this sounding familiar again? We have a vote, and the vote goes in favor of Alma and the chief judge rather than this guy who's trying to overthrow the government and set himself up as a king. And what do you do if you're Amlici and you lost a vote? You didn't get what you wanted. You're not voted in as the king. What do you do if you're following this guy and you lost the vote? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You start a war, and that's exactly what happens here. So he, he arms his people, and then the Nephites uh, prepare for war as well in verse 12, and so we have this huge civil war that's going to lead to the death on the next page of, of nearly 20,000 Nephites. 20,000 people are going to die because one man wanted all the power for himself, is what it really boils down to, and he's promised power to people who will support him, of course, because that's how it always works, but it's, it's really because of one guy. Now, you get uh, verse 16, Alma being the chief judge and the governor of the people of Nephi, therefore he went up with his people, yea, with his captains and chief captains, yea, at the head of his army against the Amlicites to battle. So I can picture this this imagery of you and me fighting with Christ in this in this very real struggle up in heaven that now you're seeing play out on the earth this battle between good and evil between freedom and captivity between liberty and bondage and uh, Alma prays for help and he actually is able to uh, defeat the the Amlicites the problem is, is we not, not only have this civil war, but a huge, lame, a numerous Lamanite army comes in to the land of Zarahemla and the Amlicites join with them. Makes you think that they've been in communication, in league with these Lamanites to say, hey, we're, we're doing this, come and help us and we'll take over the, uh, the ruling of the Nephites from the, the judges. 
Uh, and so we have all of these struggles and all of these issues to, to tackle, and it's coming at these poor people who are trying to be good, it's coming at them all at once. Now, if you, if you turn to chapter 3, this is where Mormon, the, the chief abridger, he, he shifts into editing mode or redaction mode where he's trying to help us make sense of everything that's gone on. And there's a lot of stuff in here that the world in the 21st century tries to, to superimpose our perspectives back in time on Mormon and on these people at, living at the time of Nehor and Alma, and that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. And so there are a lot of questions here, and we're not going to get into all of those, but I, I want to point out verse 19, Mormon's commentary regarding the Amlicites, who were Nephites that wanted to now identify as Lamanites. They wanted to shift their loyalties, so to speak. Look at verse 19. Now I would that you should see that they brought upon themselves the curse, and even so doth every man that is cursed bring upon himself his own condemnation. Brothers and sisters, once again, it matters far less who, who your government leaders are than, than you maybe suppose. What matters most is how you approach your relationship with God. We can, we can try to blame our problems on other people, but, but eventually there comes a time when we have to say, I'm going to take whatever freedoms I have in my country or in my civilization, my society, and I'm going to be the very best citizen I possibly can under my form of government looking to God as my ultimate king, and uh, I'm going to be accountable for the agency and the liberties and the freedoms which I do have, whatever level they are, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to be true to, I'm going to be loyal to. And, and Mormon is really doing a great job of pointing that out. And then my favorite verse in chapter 3 is actually verse 27. For every man receiveth wages of him whom he listeth to obey, and this according to the words of the spirit of prophecy, therefore let it be according to the truth. We're going to receive wages of whomever we list to obey. It's as if, it's as if two masters are giving you a blank check and you get wages from whomever you serve. Wherever you work, they're going to pay you. Both of these individuals want to pay you their wages. Both of them have given you a blank check. You get to decide who signs your check and the check is written out, all that I have is being offered to you. On the one side, you get all of the glorious, eternal, endless, mind-blowing, we can't even, I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, it hath, neither hath it entered into the heart of men, what glorious things he has in store to share with us as joint heirs with Christ if we sign up to serve him and obey him, and he's willing to give you everything he has. What does he have? Weeping, wailing, gnashing, darkness, no hope, nothing good, bondage, captivity, no real freedom, no agency. That's what he wants to give you. That's what he has, and he's willing to share it all with you. And so 
as we've, as we've been covering these stories, I hope you haven't gotten the impression that, wow, we're focusing an awful lot on the devil. The reason is, is because the Book of Mormon reveals this sharp contrast to hopefully inspire you and me today to say, wait a minute, I need to pay closer attention to the, the impressions and promptings that come from above and the temptations and the enticements that come from beneath, knowing their source and knowing what their end game is. It will probably make it a little easier for each of us to overcome our, uh, our struggles with, with sin and temptation with that perspective in mind. Now, we shift over to chapter four, our last chapter for today, and something fascinating occurs here. Alma, he holds two really, really important positions or offices. He's the, the, the prophet of the people, he's the head of the church, and he's also the head of the government. There is no separation of church and state in this, in this situation. He's, he is the top man in both areas. Now, here's Alma looking at his society. We've come through the Nehor, we've come through the Amalekai and the Amalekites situation and the war with the Lamanites in, thrown in the mix there. Whew, we've gotten through that, and he's noticing that the, the sin and pride and iniquity of the, the Nephites is just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. The human natural response might be to say, oh, well, I'm just going to pass more laws, I'm going to hire more, more police officers and, and build more prisons to demand that the people keep the laws of God more, more uh, faithfully, more diligently. I'm going to ramp up the government pressure on being good. But I think Alma recognizes that would probably be the way the devil would have tried the, the means the devil would have used to get to that end, which is forcing, trying to constrain. And so what does he do? He does the opposite of what a natural man response might be, which is to say, the people are struggling, so I'm going to give up the worldly power, and I'm going to focus 100% of my time on teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to reclaim them by, by increasing their faith in Christ and getting them to repent and keep the law of Moses still, because we're still in that time frame, but these Nephites have the gospel and uh, I'm going to go and not judge them anymore, I'm going to minister to them, I'm going to teach them. This is the hard road, this is the more difficult road. This is easier. I mean, you, you can force it, right? But you can't force people to come unto Christ. You could force conformance to laws, but you won't force them to be better people. So, it, it, this brings up an interesting question, and this is a fascinating thing for parents, for bishops and, and, and church leaders to consider, is how big does the book of rules have to be if you're going to try to enforce or, or force conformance to certain behaviors. Um, if your society is struggling, how many laws do you have to have in order to keep that society as peaceful as possible? The worse your society gets, if this is a, a measuring rod of, of uh, goodness, so let's say that a society is 
right here on the level of goodness, how many laws do those people need in order to, to be good? The reality is, is they're holding themselves accountable to God. So they don't need a lot of laws for men to tell them what to do and what not to do because they're, they're being held accountable to a, a higher order, to God himself. So they're governing their own behavior. A society down here doesn't care what God thinks. So you, as a government leader or as a government body, are going to have to to mandate what they can and can't do because they're not holding themselves accountable to this higher power. If you look at your family and you notice that things are struggling, and, and you're going to get inspiration for your own family, so this isn't a blanket statement for everybody, but it's a principle to at least consider in the process. What difference would it make if you went to God as a parent or as a sibling or as a, as a trusted adult in somebody else's life? and said, how could I love this person and minister to this person's needs more fully in a way that would help them feel of God's love and encourage and invite, on, based on correct principles, to live their life in such a way that they start turning more to God and move on up the scale. In our most recent general conference, it was quoted the uh, concept from President Benson. The world would change, changes people from the outside, changes their environment. God changes people from the inside, and then they change their environment. That's exactly what's happening here with Alma. And by the way, it's going to be really successful in places like Gideon and Melech. It's going to be somewhat successful in Zarahemla, his missionary efforts and it's going to really struggle in places like Ammonihah, which we're going to be covering in, in uh, a couple of weeks. Um, these next few weeks are going to be what happens when Alma goes around and starts teaching the people. So in conclusion, God is the king. Jesus has offered us everything. He sacrificed everything. He consecrated his whole life, his whole being, to, to God and to us, and uh, he's offering to give us everything that he has if we'll just keep striving to turn to him. And uh, the forces of the, the adversary, forces of darkness are real. Nehor's doctrines aren't Nehor's, they were the devil's, and they're still alive and well today. Amlicai's ambitions didn't die with Amlicai because they weren't really Amlicai's in isolation, they were the devils, and they're alive today. Just know that God is in his heavens, Jesus is the Christ. We have more hope now than we've ever had before that we can carry off this kingdom with his help triumphantly. We can gather the elect out of the four corners of the world and bring them into the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the only place where they will find not only peace, but where they will find freedom, liberty, and increased agency, and to be able to spread that to, to our families and to those that you have influence with is our greatest desire and our hope. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.